0: Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The New Covenant Torah. And as soon as we uh, talk about the New Covenant Torah, immediately with a title like that, certain thoughts come to your mind. The New Covenant and the Torah, and what Torah means, and uh, what are we going to talk about today? for those of, you don't, those of you who don't know, the word Torah is the Hebrew word for, for law. That's what it means. This is how <coughs> it is translated. It means law or laws. And uh, most often it is, it's how it's always translated in scriptures, but most often it's used in reference to the Mosaic law or the law of, <coughs> the law of Moses. Now, when we talk about the New Covenant and when we talk about the Old Covenant, Uh, For many people, uh, they think that the Torah, or the law of the Old Covenant, is identical to the law of the New Covenant. So this is what we want to explore a little bit today. What is this New Covenant Torah, or what is the Torah of the New Covenant, or the law of the New Covenant? And uh, is it identical, is it different, and what's this all about? Uh, We talk about the New Covenant, we talk about the Old Covenant, But something interesting that in the Bible, there is no verse that actually says Old Covenant. You realize that? It does talk about the New Covenant, but there is no verses that talk about the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is kind of assumed because there is mention of a New Covenant. The very first mention of the New Covenant, interestingly enough, happens not very early in history, but through the prophet Jeremiah. We're familiar with this passage, Jeremiah 31. This is the first time the new covenant is mentioned. Notice what it says, behold, verse Jeremiah 31 from verse 31. <clears throat> behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law, and the word there is Torah in Hebrew, in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and, it will, be to, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Few very interesting details we learn from this. Interesting that for the very first time now, God is revealing something to come called the new covenant. A few facts we can learn from that straight away. As soon as Jeremiah says new covenant, that means the current or existing one in his time is old. It makes it old straight away. And it actually makes it ready to vanish away. We're going to see that in a minute. And the other point is that this new covenant, as it says here, I will, that's what tense? Future tense. It means the new covenant was still future from the time of Jeremiah. Something to come in the future. Another feature of this covenant is it will be different to the covenant that was made with Israel when God took them out of Egypt because he says, not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers, when I took them by the hand out of Egypt. That's another interesting, important point. And of course, it will have God's law written in the heart. This passage, important as it is, is actually severely misunderstood today. There are so many ideas and theories and fallacies that exist about this particular passage, and therefore about the covenant, this one and the new one. I want to say this one, Jeremiah was living under a particular covenant at the time. So basically the point is this, as soon as God revealed this information to Jeremiah, it rendered automatically the current existing covenant, old and ready to pass away when this prophecy would be fulfilled. What covenant was Jeremiah under when he made this prophecy? Under the old covenant. It doesn't say so, but what is this old covenant that he was under? It's mentioned in, uh, in Exodus, of course, and uh, at that time when Egypt was taken, the, the reference here that God made, when I took them, in the day I took <laughs> them by the hand, God takes Israel out of Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, we have this recorded in verse 3. And Moses went up unto God, <clears throat> and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel." Very significant. He brings them to the bottom or to the base of Mount Sinai and this is what he tells Moses to communicate. And he gives them this thing that he calls my covenant. Very interesting point to keep in mind. This old covenant or first covenant was whose idea? God's idea. The covenant belongs to him. He is the originator of it. He is the one who dictated its terms. Its terms are simply this. If you obey, then you will receive a blessing. You will be my special people. These are the terms of the old covenant. Very important to keep in mind, this is the covenant that Jeremiah was living under. If you obey, if you listen and you obey to all the things that I command you, then and only then will you be my special people. And of course Moses went and told the people that and the people says, yes, sure. Whatever the Lord says we will do. And then the Lord goes on to proclaim all these conditions and all these instructions. But this point I don't want us to miss. God calls it his covenant, and it is a covenant based on a condition of, if you obey, you will be blessed. Because, keep in mind, the new covenant is not according to the covenant that God made at Sinai. Remember, that's what he said throughout, through Jeremiah. That's a very important point, because, uh, as we shall see, many people think that the only difference between the old and the new covenant is where the law is written. Correct? But we're going to see that there is an actual difference in the law itself, in the conditions of the covenant and many other aspects of it, and hopefully that's, that's how we will appreciate what this law of the new covenant really is and what it is all about. So what was the instruction when he said, if you obey my voice indeed, what instructions did God immediately give after the people returned their answer and said, yes, all the Lord has said we will do. He begins to give these instructions that they are to obey. What's the first thing he says? Next chapter is what? What, What's after Exodus 19? 20, what's in Exodus 20? Ten Commandments. Commandments. First thing that comes out of God's mouth is the 10 Commandments. And when you start talking about the 10 Commandments and the Old Covenant, sometimes we get a little bit uncomfortable, particularly for Seventh-day Adventists, because we understand certain things about the law. But notice how The Lord puts it, Exodus 24 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to the mount, uh, come up to me into the mount, and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law, the word there is Torah again, and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. Of course, this is referring to none other than. The Ten Commandments, the first thing that God wrote with his hand, the only thing really, and he gave to Moses was the Ten Commandments, but it wasn't the only thing. It says, and there were also other commandments that would follow, as we shall see in a minute. But that's the point. This is the Torah that was associated with the Old Covenant. Another verse spells it out even more clearly. Deuteronomy 4, 12-14, to it says, And the Lord spake unto you, out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only you heard a voice. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even 10 commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that he might do them in the land whither you go over to possess it. You see the point here. God says, my covenant is none other than the Ten Commandments, that's the Torah. They are used interchangeably, these words. And along with that were also statutes and judgments. All the things that God revealed to Moses, beginning with the Ten Commandments, and following with all the revelations that he gave him over the period of 40 days, that he went down and wrote in a book, which constitute the book of the law, or the Torah. These are the conditions and elements of the Old Covenant which was based on, if you obey all these things, I will bless you. And you will be my peculiar and special people. And so it's important to keep this point in mind, that the Torah, the covenant, the Ten Commandments are all referring to the same thing. When we talk about the Ten Commandments, many times we think of them as isolated. Here God says the Ten Commandments and he links them with everything else. The Ten Commandments were the first and most important thing that God gave. But everything is contained in this book of the law. Keep in mind, when God gave the prophecy to Jeremiah, he says, the new covenant is not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers. The fathers of Jeremiah, the ancestors of Jeremiah, stood at the base of that mountain and entered into this covenant with God through Moses. And Jeremiah was living under that covenant. God told Jeremiah, I'm gonna make a new covenant, Jeremiah, but I want you to note something about it. It is not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers. Important point to keep in mind because this helps us understand what is God's intention and what is God's purpose. But first of all, is it really new? I've heard, that, I've heard this uh, raised a few times. There are a number of fallacies about the, the new covenant. Some people say that it's not actually a new covenant. It is a renewed covenant. I don't know if you heard that or not, but I have. And people say it's a renewed covenant, it's not a new covenant. Usually uh, this claim is made by those who want to maintain the mosaic law or some aspect of the mosaic law. Messianic groups, uh, Hebrew roots groups, generally will use this terminology and say no, a new covenant is not even an accurate translation. It should be the renewed covenant. Is this true or not? Uh, when I first heard this, I was a bit surprised. I said to the person who told me, I said, what are you talking about renewed covenant? It's not a renewed covenant. If it's a renewed covenant, that means it is still the same covenant. Now, it's not really that hard to figure out. The, the Hebrew word for, for new, it means fresh, something new, literally. Uh, the word that is actually used uh, is, uh, is one of those two. Now I want you to look at this carefully. Uh, this is the Hebrew, st- uh, this is the strongest number for these Hebrew words, uh, 2318 and 2319, right? One of them means renew, and the other one means new. Now I want to uh, ask you a question here. Which one do you think is used in Jeremiah? New. Now, you might think, well, they look very similar, right? Just, you need to pay careful attention to the juts and the tittles. (laughs) Literally, if you look carefully, I think we have a laser here, yeah? Okay, right there, see, there's a difference here, and that difference makes a difference of pronunciation, and therefore a difference of meaning. Obviously, new and renew, even in English, they, they have the same word, right? It's the same root, but one means something different. And here's another example of the same word used elsewhere in the scriptures. In Exodus 1.8, it says, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph, new king. That's the same word that's used about the new covenant. It's not a renewed covenant. It's not the old covenant rehashed and repackaged. That's not what the new covenant is. It is a new covenant. It is not, it has nothing to do with old. Because if it's a renewed covenant, then that means the old covenant is still in effect. It's just been repackaged and uh, presented differently. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is what a lot of people think the new covenant is. It's a rehashed old covenant. That is not what God intended, and that is not what God meant. New means something fresh. Renewed means something rebuilt or restored. This is the first fallacy. The second fallacy that I have heard is that the new covenant for us today has not yet come about it is actually still to be fulfilled in the future. I honestly don't know why anyone would make such a claim. How can that be good news to us today? You know, for Jeremiah, yes, Jeremiah was living at the time when God told him, Jeremiah, look, I am going to make a new covenant. It's coming. But that time, brothers and sisters, has come. It has come because of what Christ has accomplished. Because if the new covenant, for us today, is not here yet, if it's still future, then that means we are still where? Under the old covenant. The Bible calls that, it genders to bondage. Paul quotes uh, Jeremiah in Hebrews eight thirteen. This is what he says. In that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. When he's saying this verse, he's quoting Jeremiah. Because where in the scriptures does God talk about a new covenant? In Jeremiah, the one we just read. So when he says, in that he saith, or in other words, in Jeremiah, where God says new, a new covenant, immediately he made the existing one, or the first one, old. So Paul is saying, from the time that Jeremiah said there is a new covenant, he made the current one at his time old, and that which is old, it waxes old and decays, and is ready to vanish away. Paul is introducing something very important here to his hearers. What he's telling them is, Jeremiah's prophecy has come about. As soon as God said, new covenant, that old one is going to pass away. The whole epistle to the Hebrews is to... Bring about the fact that the old one is done. We have now the new one and the better one. He's using that argument from Jeremiah. In chapter 9, the very next chapter uh, of Hebrews, he actually talks about the details and elements of the old covenant and demonstrates their limited scope. He talks about all the different items and the furniture and the sanctuary and all the different elements of that covenant. And then this is what he says, Hebrews 9.10 which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. All these things were imposed for a certain period until the time of Reformation. What's the time of Reformation? It's not Martin Luther, okay? (laughs) The time of Reformation is the time of uh, rectification. This is the time when Christ would come and reform things, Bring something about that would bring about a change, a difference, something new. This is none other than the coming of Christ. In chapter 10, he talks about the shadowy nature of the law. He talks about its inability to make anything perfect. And again, he quotes the prophecy of Jeremiah. This is what he says, Hebrews ten nine. It's quite clear in Hebrews. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first... That he may establish the second. The first what? Covenant Covenant or testament. That he might establish the second. That happens with the coming of Christ. When Christ came as a sacrifice and he died, he fulfilled that. And this is why Paul quotes Jeremiah again. He quotes Jeremiah in Hebrews 8. He quotes the, the prophecy. And then he quotes Jeremiah in Hebrews 10. And in between, he goes into the details and shows you all the limitations and failings of the old covenant to highlight the better things of the new. then he says here in verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. He's saying this covenant is here. The proof, there is no more offering for sin. We have this one sacrifice that is sufficient and everlasting and there is no more need to offer for sin. And so, this offering of Christ stands at the heart and core of the new covenant. It is here, brothers and sisters. It's been here since Christ died and rose. There is no question about that, and quite honestly, I do not know how anyone can say that the new covenant is still future. Think about it this way. If the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection failed to bring in the new covenant, then what greater event do you look for to bring the new covenant about? How can you top the death and the resurrection of Christ? Someone will say the second coming, perhaps. some, Some people try and attempt that. You know, the second coming is only because of what Christ first did. The second coming is not the beginning of the new covenant. If this is what you believe, I'm sorry, with all due respect, you are utterly confused about the gospel. Maybe we need to sit down and talk. I don't mean offense to people, but honestly, Jesus said it in his own words, as we shall see. I want to explore just briefly a few differences between the Old and the New Covenant. But before we look at the differences, I want to look at some similarities. Both are called covenants, right? Both have a Torah. God gave to Moses instruction, says, if you will obey my voice, I will bless you. In the New Covenant, he says, I will write my law in their hearts. And the word law there is? Torah, which has led a lot of people to conclude, will say, Torah in the Old Covenant. And then he says he will write the Torah in the New Covenant. So the difference is, the Torah that was in stone and in books, is now going to be the same Torah where? In the heart. That's what a lot of people believe. Is this what God meant? And if this is not what God meant, then what in the world was he referring to? What is this Torah of the New Covenant? Both covenants are made with Israel. And... uh, Those, uh, both covenants are God's idea or God's institution. It was God's plan. I wanna look at a few differences as well and then I wanna zero in on on some important ones. The differences between the covenants, one is temporary and one is eternal. Of course, one is old, one is new. One was shadowy and typical. The other was a reality and antitypical or a fulfillment of the shadows. The old covenant, made nothing perfect, the book of Hebrews tells us. But the new, which is called or referred to as the better hope, does make perfect. We looked at the conditions earlier, I wanna go over that again, because this is a point that I find comes up often and is what causes a lot of confusion. Galatians 3.12, Paul summarizes the conditions for the old covenant. He says, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Where did he learn that from? Exodus 19 that we just read right earlier if you do them you will live in them i will bless you i will bless you you will be my people and all the different blessings that god uh, goes into detail and in revealing in the, in the old covenant i'll bless your land i'll bless your your women will have children your soldiers in battle will succeed all these different blessings they were based on the condition that if you do them you will live in them what are the conditions of the new covenant To many people, it's the same. If you obey, you will have life. Here it is from the scripture, so you don't say the preacher's saying. John three thirty-six: He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. This is the condition of the new covenant. Faith. And Paul, who was a preacher and a minister of the New Covenant, writing in Galatians, he's making a distinction, he's making a contrast. That's why at the beginning there, before he gives you the conditions for the Old Covenant, he, he makes a statement that's very important. He says, listen, the law is what? Not of faith. But if you obey, you will receive a blessing. If you fulfill your part of the contract, I will bless you. Paul saying this was not of faith. This was a contract. You obey, I will bless this is what God had given in the Old Covenant. The new is based on believing. If you believe, or if you have faith, right? You will have everlasting life. And so God had indicated very clearly that this system that he instituted at Sinai called the Old Covenant was temporary and was going to come to an end and was going to change. It was not eternal. It was never designed to be eternal because its purpose was not salvation. Its purpose was to point forward to Salvation that was to come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, Hebrews seven twelve. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of, is made of necessity a change also of the law. Again, very interesting verse. All the verses today are interesting, okay? So you need to pay attention. <laughs> All the verses in the Bible are. In this passage, again, right there in the heart of, of Hebrews... Paul is using, the, using a point to illustrate something to his ear. He says, look, the priesthood has changed. Because this priesthood is changed, it proves that the law is changed. Which law? Some people say, well, the law of the priesthood. But the law of the priesthood was not an isolated, standalone law. The entire system of the law that was given at Sinai was a law that was a priesthood law, a law that had statutes, a law that had judgments, a law that at its first first thing God said in it was the Ten Commandments. That whole package is called the law. Because a little earlier, Paul says it was, you know, at that time that the people were given the law and the priesthood. It's all one package. We can't go dividing and splitting it up. And so Paul's point here is simply this. The priesthood being changed, because it was pointing forward to a better priesthood, proves that there was going to be a change of law. And as a good Hebrew, In Paul's mind, what's the Hebrew word for law? Torah. This is heresy to a lot of people. People say, no, 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 the Torah can't change. Paul is saying that right here. A change also of the law, the law that was given at Sinai. The Torah was going to change. Well, what's it going to change to? You know, I've had a number of discussions with people. I've had someone, you know, talk... uh, talk to me and say, you know, the Torah, the Torah is what God writes in our hearts, referring to the law of Moses, the the Old Covenant law. It doesn't change because God doesn't change. God says, I am the same today, yesterday and forever, and I change not, and all these verses we use. Half of them are out of context, but anyway, Honestly, I'm not saying that as a joke. Honestly, when people God talks about him not changing, it's his character. God changes his dealings and and the way he operates in different times with different people. There's no question about that. But people tend to use that verse and and slap it anywhere and everywhere uh, to try and prove something. But anyway, we'll deal with that tomorrow. That's another story. But when you look at this verse, and this is where I took them, them to this verse... This verse simply means what it says. When it says a change of law, it does mean that. It means the removing of something and bringing in something else. If you look up uh, the the occurrences of that word, this is a good piece of homework to do. That's how it's translated. Something that is removed, something that is changed. So God indicated that about the covenant. Galatians 3.19, same author says basically the same thing. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgression, Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. What's the purpose of the law? He doesn't say to give everlasting life, does he? He says it was given for a purpose. Because of transgression, and it was until the seed should come. What's that? Christ. Particularly, when did he come as the seed? when he was born of Mary. Because some people think that Christ coming as the seed is actually his second coming. not sure if you've heard that or not, but some people have, uh, I have heard that repeated often. Christ when he comes as the seed, he's coming as the seed means the offspring. He comes as a man, as a son of man. That's when he came and was born of Mary. And so the law would function and would operate till the coming of the seed. That's not the second coming. It's Christ's incarnation. What law is Paul talking about? The same one. A few verses earlier he said the law which was added 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham, that's Sinai. He's talking about the event where at Sinai, God gave a system of laws and instructions called the Old Covenant, the condition of which if you obey it, I will bless you. If you don't obey it, I will not bless you. Paul says this law, was until the seed should come. So when the seed should come, which is the time of reformation, there would come about a change of the of the law. That's his point. That's what it was doing. And so the whole purpose, brothers and sisters, of the Old Covenant and the Torah of the Old Covenant was to point forward to the seed and the coming of the seed. Everyone who lived in the Old Testament who was a believer, this was their hope, night and day, when the seed would come. When will the seed come? Because with the coming of the seed is, is linked, the fulfillment of that prophecy that God gave to Jeremiah of the new covenant. Romans ten four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. When was the last time you used that verse in a Bible study? Christ is the end of the law, what does that verse mean? It means just what it says, right? First of all, let's identify some things. The law, which law? Paul is a Hebrew, remember, right? He's referring to that law that God instituted, the system, the entire system of law, or laws, maybe I should say laws, because many times, particularly as Adventists, when we talk about the law, usually you understand the 10 commandments, that's it, because we have uh, been, uh, you, we, have, we have gotten used to the idea of seeing the Ten Commandments as separate and distinct and apart from everything else. God gave it all together as part of the Old Covenant. He calls it by the Old Covenant. Even Ten Commandments which I declared unto you. And so when Paul, as the Hebrew, talks about the law, he's talking about the whole lot. I don't want us to miss that. He says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness sake. The word end there, if you look it up, the, the meaning is very significant. It means the objects or the goal, or the destination of the law. The law served as a signpost, or as a type of that would point forward to the seed, to Christ. So when Christ comes, he is the goal, he is the destination that the law was pointing forward to. Paul's point is simply this, it's been fulfilled. Christ is that fulfillment. That's his point here, that's why he's saying Christ is the end of the law, for a reason, right? For? Righteousness' sake. We saw the other day that one of the missions of Christ prophesied by Daniel is that he would bring in everlasting what? Righteousness. That's what Paul is saying here. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness' sake. And this is why the Lord, when he came, he fulfilled that law. Matthew 5:17. Think not that I come to destroy the Lord of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Again, this is an often quoted verse and sometimes it's more confused than not. Because Jesus says, I will not destroy the law or the prophets, a lot of people conclude that fulfilling means maintaining as is, correct? And they say, well, Jesus says he did not destroy it. So if he didn't destroy it, it means it stays, as is. No, he says fulfill, <coughs> there is a difference. If it stays as is, it means it is not fulfilled, right? The law and the prophets needed fulfilling. Without the fulfillment, it is incomplete. We're a people of prophecy, right? Prophecy tells you about something that is going to be fulfilled sometime in the future. The prophecy, so long as that thing is not fulfilled, is not complete yet. It is awaiting something. And if the fulfillment never happens, we call that what kind of a prophecy? A false or a failed prophecy if it doesn't happen. It's unfulfilled, incomplete. Jesus says, listen, don't think I'm going to destroy the law and the prophets. I do not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Fulfill means to fill up, to complete. Very important point. A completed law is not identical to an incompleted or unfulfilled law. There is a change of law. Jesus told that, Paul told that, and we want to pinpoint what this change is and what it means. I want to illustrate that in a few ways because this is a very significant point I find that I want to make sure everybody understands, and it helped me, it helped clarify things for me as well. I want to illustrate it this way. When it talks about the law being, you know, a type, or the Christ is the end of the law for righteousness sake. The law points to a goal or an object. Here is a sign, right? A road sign. And this road sign makes a promise to you, right? Mm-hmm. That if you go in this direction, you will arrive at Sydney. Now, I picked Sydney on purpose because I'm assuming most people in this room have not been to Sydney. Is that correct? Okay, good. That's the the point of the illustration. I don't want anyone to have been there. I know some have, but most haven't. Now, if you follow this sign, you will arrive at the said destination. In this case, Sydney. The destination is the fulfillment of the sign, correct? If you show me pictures of Sydney, and you plan to go there, you plan to visit, right? You're excited about your trip, you show me pictures and maps and all this stuff. You know, I might look at you and tell you, that's great, I've been there. <laughs> you know, I, these pictures that mean a lot to you, it's excellent, it's great. But I, I've experienced it. I, I didn't have pictures, I was living there. I saw it in live, 3D, experience, sound, sight, smells, Are you with me? And uh, I can give you details and information that no picture can portray, no book can write. You with me? All these things are as signs, or things that tell you about the destination, but they're not the destination themselves. And I wanna, I wanna pinpoint a few other aspects uh, of that. Uh, no matter how many words I use, or pictures, I will never be able to portray to you accurately what it's like to be standing right there in the middle of the city, and to actually experience it for yourself. No matter how much I say, if I sit down, if I even show you videos, all kinds of stuff, it will not be the same, right? Only if you are there can you experience it. Now here's something very interesting that you will notice when you get to Sydney. There are no Sydney road signs in Sydney. Okay, all the signs with Sydney on on the sign pointing to Sydney, they're all outside. When you get to Sydney, we don't have any more signs for Sydney. You know why? It's pretty obvious. You're there, right? You don't need signs when you're there. If you're in Sydney and you're looking for the Sydney signs, what does that indicate? You're lost. (laughs) Or you have no idea where you are. Correct? If you want to see the signs, you have to leave the city. You have to go back out. This is a very fitting illustration, I find, because the Bible tells us plainly. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness sake. If you think about all the aspects I I pointed out in the illustration, that's exactly how it is with Christ and the law. Many people, many people don't realize where they are in Christ. They're still looking for the road signs and they want to call a project together to plant Sydney road signs in the middle of Sydney. You with me? To still establish the signs when we are at the destination, it means we don't really realize that we've arrived at the destination. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness sake. The destination that the law points to. That's why God had given it. Till the seed should come. Jesus said it very well to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures for they are they which testify of me. You search the scriptures. And you are still searching the scriptures and looking at the road signs and you're failing to realize that I am here. That's his point, right? He says, but you won't come to me. You know, you might have all the books and all the videos and DVDs about Sydney. uh, You're not there. You might know all the trivia and all the details, information, you're not there. That's what Jesus said. The old covenant, the Torah, brothers and sisters, without Christ is incomplete. And I really like that uh, picture there because I don't know if you can see it. There is kind of a, there's a face there, right? Can you see it? Yeah. Okay, I thought that was very clever, whoever did that. Very fitting. They testify of Christ. That, that's not just the picture that is point- painting. That's an illustration that all of this is pointing to a living person, an individual, a person. Not to words, not to instructions and letters, but to a living person. That's the purpose of the old covenant that's the purpose of the Torah to point you there and what's what Paul says Jesus is the destination Jesus came to fulfill he he came to fill out the shadows with reality that's what he did and the people failed to realize that and so instead of animal sacrifices you have the living sacrifices instead of an earthly priesthood you have the heavenly priesthood the Melchizedek priesthood instead of an earthly temple Heavenly Sanctuary, and everything was pointing to a greater reality. Everything. Christ is that reality. And so he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. He came to fulfill. And in fulfilling that, he gave us a greater and better thing. Much better, hopefully, as, as we shall see. And so this is why we need to understand the relationship between the Old Covenant and it's Torah, or it's referred to as the same thing, and the New Covenant, and the Torah. What is the New Covenant? If you were to simplify it, what is the New Covenant? Many books I have written, and discussions, and all kinds of stuff. The Bible tells us, I'm not asking for your answer. Isaiah 42:6. I am the Lord, Sir, I the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. This is a messianic prophecy about Christ. But it reveals something very interesting. Christ was to be given as what? A covenant for the people. Which covenant? He's the new covenant. Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant. He is what the old covenant pointed to in all the shadows and all the types and all the systems that God instituted. For a time and for a season and for a purpose. It was to point to Christ. Because Christ is the covenant or the new covenant that was coming. The light to the Gentiles, a few chapters later, Isaiah says that as well. We don't generally think of the New Covenant that way. We actually, in my discussions, like I said, I, I find this very common, we think of the New Covenant as another or modified set of instructions and conditions. Again, words and letters, right? The New Covenant is a person, brothers and sisters. A person, a living person. Luke 22, Jesus said it, verse 20. Likewise, also the cup after supper saying this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you The blood is the life, right? There is the symbol the cup the symbol of that blood of the life or the life and Jesus says this is the New Testament In my blood in my life. The life of Christ is the New Testament To be in the New Testament or in the new covenant is to have the life of Christ That's what the New Testament is the New Testament is not the last section of our Bible. This is the written form that tells us about the new covenant. The new covenant is Christ. He's a person. This is the living reality of the covenant, brothers and sisters. It's not a set of instructions. It's not shadows. It's not types. It's not any of these things, unfortunately. This is why today we have so much confusion. People trying to institute elements of the old covenant in the new. And therefore, Christ is actually dishonored. What about it being written in the heart? Someone say, well, you know, this sounds good, brother. Okay. That's great. But God says he's going to write a law in the heart. And the word law there is Torah. There you go. Now I want to tell you something right off the bat. God is not going to write an unfulfilled law in your heart when the fulfillment has come about. Okay? Okay. It cannot utterly be the same Torah of the Old Covenant. It cannot be, because that's unfulfilled and incomplete. That's a denial that the fulfillment has come. And he says, I'm going to do it. And Jeremiah, note this. It is not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers. Something is different. What is this law that God is going to write in the heart of the believer in the New Testament, who has Christ in him? Paul tells us, Romans 8, 2 and 3. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We all know these verses, we can, <laughs> we can recite them, right? But notice carefully what it says. Here it tells us about the law of the new covenant. What is it? It is the law of the spirit, and where is it? It is in Christ Jesus, the spirit of life. The law that God writes in our hearts, the law of the new covenant, is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It is not copy-paste, the words of the Old Covenant, copy-pasted miraculously into your heart. This is what we think. As a matter of fact, a lot of people think that if I memorize the Ten Commandments, this is how God writes them on my heart. Right? I don't need to ask for confirmation. You know that's how most of us think. I've memorized the Ten Commandments, and I've heard preachers say, you know, you memorize the word and you commit it to your mind. And then God puts his stamp on it and makes it permanent. And this is how he writes it on your heart. It's like when you sit on your computer and you do copy-paste. You copy it from the rock, and you paste it in your heart. It's still words. It's still the identical same thing. I have news for you. There's something better. It's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That is the Torah. This is the law of the new covenant. The fulfilled Torah. And that fulfillment is only in the life of Christ. This is why Jesus told them, listen, this is the cup. The New Testament is in my blood. It's in my life. That's the law of the life in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 3. He makes a contrast so we don't miss the point. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. What law was weak through the flesh? The law of the previous dispensation, or the law of the old covenant. And when he talks about the law, he talks about the whole thing. It was weak through the flesh, Paul says. What does that mean? It means that the Torah of the old covenant could not make people righteous. It could not give them life. It could not transform them. It could not renew them. It could not make them obey from the heart. It was a set of instructions and directions which if they complied with, God would bless them. To teach them of the better thing and the better way that God would do it in the new. That was the point. And Paul is making a contrast. He he says, listen, we have this, this thing called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's what makes us free. Because the law, and everybody listening to him knows what he's talking about. The law couldn't do that. It was weak through the flesh. And so God did something. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he fulfilled that law. He condemned sin in the flesh. He became the new law, the fulfilled one. And then he says, I'm going to put this spirit in you. It's called the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's what makes us free. This is the Torah of the new covenant. It is none other than the life of Christ. Now, I'm going to come back to that point in a little bit, but without spending too much time, another aspect of the new covenant is God says, uh, they won't have to teach each other anymore and say, know the Lord. They will all know me. And sometimes people use that and say, look, we still teach each other, right? Look, I'm preaching, like today, I'm preaching today. Therefore, that proves that the new covenant is not here. That's what some people use. That's not the case. Remember what Jesus said? The Comforter, when he comes, he will do what? Teach you? How many things? All things. And he will reveal to you things that will come. In John it talks about first John, it talks about the anointing which you have received of him. it teaches you all things and you have no need that any man teach you. And at the same time, this Jesus who gave all these promises, told his disciples, "Go and preach and teach all nations. So the fact that we are preaching it doesn't mean that nobody's going to talk to everyone and through some vision or dream, everybody's just going to have a download of information from God. that's not what he's talking about. It's talking about now the work of sharing the gospel is going to be through the Spirit. And so when we preach, we are ministers of the Spirit. This is the way that the Spirit communicates and talks. And so you don't just go by what I say because I am instructed in the law and you follow what I say. You have a witness in your heart, the witness of the Spirit that can tell you this is truth or this is not truth. You are being taught by the Spirit. The Spirit uses different agencies and means. So this is part of the fulfillment of the new covenant. There is no question about that. And so it's important to keep this aspect in mind. And so this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, this is the new element that God was talking about. This is how God writes His law in our hearts. A brand new way. A way that was not actually promised or realized in the Old Covenant, but it was coming. Christ brought that about. And this is why the the Bible tells us that the law could not give life. If there was a commandment that could give life, God would have given it. There was no commandment or law that could give life. Only Christ can give us life. And this is why God illustrated it this way. It's two aspects. In the Old Covenant, if the people obeyed the law, then God would bless them. God would have to do something out of the law to give them a blessing. The law did not give them that blessing. You with me? It was just the conditions. In the New Covenant, God does not have to do anything outside of Christ to give you life in giving you Christ, in giving you that covenant, this in it is everything you need. Every blessing you need is in Christ. You can't top up those blessings by running to the old covenant and borrowing some things to obey and say we have more blessing. This is a denial of the blessings that are contained in Christ. I want to explore that a little, little bit more in, in the little time that we have left, but, but do, you, do you see the difference, brothers and sisters? It doesn't mean we are lawless in the new covenant. This is the problem. And I understand a lot of people with good motive, they try and protect the law or aspects of the law, particularly the Ten Commandments, and I'm not saying the Ten Commandments are done, but we try and borrow the Ten Commandments in the form that God gave them in the Old Covenant, a letter of the law. Because we are trying to this is the law and God's law and God's character and, and it's a good motive. But what it ends up doing, it makes us miss the better thing of the new covenant. God says, listen, the Ten Commandments, they were a brief minimum. There is this thing called the law of life in Christ Jesus. You think the law of life in Christ Jesus is going to make you go break the Ten Commandments? You honestly think that? Of course not. It's going to actually make you go above and beyond the Ten Commandments, believe it or not the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And so this is, this is, brothers and sisters, the Ten Commandments. No longer letters written on stone, but a living reality in 3D, in full color, called Jesus Christ. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's what the New Covenant is. Welcome to the New Covenant. It's been here for 2,000 years. And you know what's the sad thing is a lot of us Christians, profess that we are in the old covenant, but in uh, sorry, profess that we're in the new covenant, but in reality, we are rehashed old covenant people. Rehashed, remade, a bit here, a bit there, and we don't really realize what we have. I wanna talk briefly about another aspect. Everything's brief, right? Because we're we're towards the end, so we're gonna keep it brief. Legal right versus a better or greater uh, right. I'll say that again. A legal right, versus a greater right. What am I saying? That which is legal and according to the letter of the law is not always right. You realize that? I know that sounds like a bit of a strange statement, and before you agree, you'll say, well, I'll see what he says next before I agree. But that's okay. In other words, it's not always what God intends and desires, the letter of the law. There's a very interesting, there's many illustrations, but a very interesting uh, incident occurred. You remember when Jesus was in the field with his disciples and they were eating the corn and the Pharisees came and they complained and they they busted them. They said, look, you're breaking the Sabbath. Very interesting conversation follows. Matthew 12, verse 3. But he said unto them, have you not heard what David did when he was unhungered and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Now I don't want you to miss this. We all know this story, but when the Pharisees were picking on Christ, they were actually not using a, a part of the law. What Christ was doing was not wrong. What the disciples were doing were not wrong. It was wrong in the Pharisees' eyes because they had added laws and regulations and restrictions to the Sabbath. Then Jesus uses that and he addresses their thinking. What they're thinking was, you're breaking the letter of the law. So then he quotes aspects of the letter of the law, which are valid, which are legitimate, and he shows them examples where the letter was violated and God approved it to demonstrate a point. The point was they had a problem in their thinking. They were stuck to the letter of the law so much they did not see beyond it. This is his point. So he's telling them, listen David, here's a, law, a, law, here's a, a legal thing in the law. The showbread is only for the priest. Don't you remember David ate it? What was he doing? He was addressing their thinking. He goes on to the next example, or have you not read? In the law, how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if he had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, he would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Wow. How often have we quoted that last verse? Do we really know what he's saying? What is he saying? The Sabbath day was one of the ultimate signs of the law, of the old covenants, okay? Now it's given from creation, don't get me wrong, it's not just limited to that, but God used it to demonstrate a very important aspect of the old covenant. Jesus says, listen, one is here that is greater than that. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath day. He's telling them the law is finding its realization in me. The letter now will no longer suffice. There is something called the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. But they failed to appreciate that. That's his point. The point he is making. Something greater than the law is coming. Who is that? The author of the law. Oh, that's good. You know, a lot of people fight for keeping the law. And and when you say, look, you have Jesus. It's like you're getting a second best thing. Jesus is the author of the law. And there is more to the law than just what is listed in the Ten Commandments. And so, a legal right is not always the greater right. Christ gave two examples of a greater right. There's many others. A killing, for example, right? You know, we all know the story. Jesus says, don't be angry with your brother. If you're angry with your brother, you are violating that command, right? It doesn't say that in the commandment, correct? Correct? What was Jesus doing? He was showing them the deeper aspects of the law that are not spelled out in the letter. Here is the spirit of the law communicating aspects of the law that are greater than the letter. So what did the Pharisees do that heard him? They killed him. Letter keeping, Old Covenant Pharisees. Torah keeping, Old Covenant Pharisees killed the New Covenant, literally. The same mentality is the death of the new covenant today in many people's minds and hearts. You realize that? What did it? The letter of the law. They didn't get their hands dirty. They didn't drive the nails in his hands. They didn't crucify him on the cross. They killed him. And so we need to watch for that brothers and sisters. And today the same danger exists. That when we cling to the temporary old covenant or aspects of the old covenant in the presence of the new covenant, it is to deny that they have been fulfilled. To continue to hold to an unfulfilled law while the fulfillment is here is an insult to that which fulfills. You realize that? That's what Christ is. He is the new covenant. He is the Torah of the new covenant. It's amazing that the very thing that God intended to point to Christ can actually be the very same thing that can be contrary to Christ, when it is not used and applied in the way God intended. <clears throat> Writing the law in the heart. I wanna cover this a little bit, because it's a common one. When, when we say God writes the law in the heart, and like I mentioned before, maybe I should ask this. How many people have mem- here memorized the Ten Commandments? Hands up if you've memorized the Ten Commandments. God bless you, wow, that's great. It's not that hard, they're not that long. I'm not gonna ask you as to why, but I do remember why I did it. I'll come to that in a minute. Some people think this is the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. The Ten Commandments were written in stone, now they're written in the heart. I've actually given God a head start. I've gone ahead and memorized it myself, and so I've made his job a lot easier. An unspoken and yet, subconscious reality that exists in our our minds. It's a psyche that exists in our minds, right? You know what I'm talking about. If (laughs) if you've been an Adventist any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So it's not copy-paste. I want to show you something in the Old Covenant, as far as the law and where it was to be written. Okay, we're gonna come to that, but uh, before we do, let's read Deuteronomy chapter six and verse six. And these words which I command thee this day shall be where, in thine heart, old covenant or new. Deuteronomy is where, the law, old covenant. Did you know that the law was to be written in their hearts in the old covenant? You realize that? Here it is in Isaiah 51:7. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Who is he talking to? Old covenant people. Oops, all of a sudden we're just on the same level as them, right? They were to have the law in their hearts, we have the law in our hearts. God says, I will write the law in their hearts, in the new covenant. But he says, I will not do it according to the covenant I made with their fathers. So just having the law in your hearts does not mean you're in the new covenant. In other words, memorizing the law or memorizing the Ten Commandments. It has to be something more, something different. It is the law of life in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're going to memorize the Ten Commandments, God bless you. It's not a bad thing. But that's not the end of the story. That's the whole point. There is much more to that. There is a difference. Now, I want to go back to, to this uh, verse that I missed here. 2 Corinthians 3.6. In talking about the Pharisees who killed Christ. It says here, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. You want an illustration of that? Look at what the Pharisees did to Christ. Very loaded verse here. A minister of the New Covenant or the New Testament is not a minister of the letter. To preach the New Covenant, to minister the New Covenant is not to preach letters and words and instructions and laws. If you are preaching laws, and instructions, and the keeping of them. You are not a minister of the new covenant. You with me? This is what he's saying. A minister of the covenant, minister is what? The spirit. Something far superior, far exceeding the letter. And then he tells you why, because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter is dry and lifeless, and can be used to kill. So the Pharisees did. But the spirit gives life. This is how Christ writes that law. It's not letters that he writes in your heart, brothers and sisters. He doesn't just copy-paste the law and says, look here, let's learn it together. This is not what he does. He puts his spirit in your hearts. Now, there is a verse in this chapter that we all know. It's in the last part of this chapter. Same chapter. I'll start the verse off and you'll know it. Now, the Lord is that spirit and... Where the spirit of the Lord there is? Liberty, we use that a lot, right? When it says the Lord is that spirit, what's it referring to? That spirit right here. The Lord Jesus is the spirit that gives life. He is the spirit of the new covenant. He is the law of the new covenant. Not a letter, not words, but a living person called the Lord who is that spirit and he's the only one that can bring liberty. And so this is why this is this new and wonderful Thing. Jesus said it is in his blood, in his life. Him living in the heart. He is the law of the new covenant. So whatsoever he says, we follow. It goes without saying that he will not contradict the most basic things that he gave in his 10 commandments. But he will far exceed them. And we will see that. The commandments that Jesus gave, one of the most beautiful things that Jesus ever preached was the Sermon on the Mount. You know the Sermon on the Mount? I'm going to ask you another question. All those people have raised your hand. You memorized the Ten Commandments. How many of you memorized the Sermon on the Mount? Don't put your hand down. (laughs) Okay, someone did. Praise the Lord. The Sermon on the Mount. Here is the Lord of life Himself speaking in person to the people. In the very sermon where He says, listen, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill I'm giving you the fulfillment. We're stuck on the law and the letter of the law. Here's the fulfillment. Here's Jesus preaching. Preaching things that people never heard before. You know, if you're in the Spirit Prophecy, it says the people listening to him on that day on the mountain, they were spellbound. It was like they were listening, hearing stuff that they never heard before. Because every day in the synagogue, they hear, do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. Here's Jesus telling them, listen. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and abuse you. Wow. Where is that in the Ten Commandments? That's in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It doesn't contradict the Ten Commandments. No, it takes you to a greater level. It takes you to the fulfillment. God tells you, listen, when I gave that commandment, don't kill, this is really what I had in mind. This is what I intended. I want you to to understand that you are to love your neighbor, that you, you don't even render evil for evil, that you turn the other cheek, that you pray for these people. That trouble you, annoy you, and even persecute you, and even kill you. That's the Torah of the new covenant. Now how many people did that in the old covenant? They didn't kill their neighbors. They loved their neighbors, and they hated their enemies. They kept the letter of the law, but there was something greater that Jesus wanted to show. And this is what he is giving us in this completed law. Now... when we look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the golden rule is there, right? Why is it called the golden rule? Actually, do we know what the golden rule is? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Golden rule, what Christ said. And when he said that, he actually said something very interesting right after. You know what he says? For this is the law and the prophets. That's what he said. He was teaching them about what the law looks like when it's fulfilled. When God's true intention is realized and understood, this is what it will look like. And he says, as a new covenant believer, I'm going to put my spirit in your heart so that you can do this. You can't love your enemies. Loving your enemies, we treat it many times as a law written just like the Ten Commandments. I need to go and love my enemy. I don't like them. I can't stand them. I don't want to look at them. They come to church on Sabbath. I'm going to go sit on the other side and all this stuff. But I love my enemy. So we see them, oh, happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. Why? We have a law that says, love your enemies. You with me? But the heart many times is not in it. So Jesus says, listen, I'm going to put my spirit in your heart so I can enable you to do that. So even the things that Jesus said, they're not to be treated like the Ten Commandments set of instructions of do's and don'ts. They are a picture of the reality that he wants to fulfill in you when he puts the spirit of life in you. That's the new covenant, brothers and sisters. Amen. I'll tell you another example. I have lots of them. My little girl, she's not even one yet. And uh, she goes everywhere and, and she's crawling around and she's a cute little thing. And she's a cheeky little thing. And uh, a lot of the times I find myself or my wife telling her, don't go there, get out of the drawer. Don't touch that. Oh, don't play with that, don't eat that. Don't go to the oven, it's hot. There is this, I told my wife, I said, our child is going to become a, a negative child, because everything's don't. <laughs> our, our communication with her is, is a set of don'ts. You with me? And we're learning this by experience. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling sorry for her, so many times I'll try and distract her by being positive and say, look, let's play with this thing, rather than saying don't play with that. But you know, I was thinking about it, and it's very much like God deals with us, like God dealt with the Israelites. Her level of comprehension cannot understand that the oven is hot if you touch it, you burn yourself and it's a disaster, it's no good. The easiest thing for me to communicate to her at her level is don't go there, don't touch her, and I restrict her. My governance of her, how I govern her is by a set of instructions that are restrictive, that are negative. Don'ts, don'ts, don'ts. Have you ever looked at the Ten Commandments? They're all worded as don'ts. Eight of them, right? Don't have other gods before me. Don't make images and worship them. Don't take God's name in vain. The Sabbath is keep it, we'll come back to that one. And the honor your parents is a positive one. Then it says what, the rest is all don'ts. Don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, don't covet, don't, 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 do don't. all don'ts, why? They're all couched in negative language. Because in negative language you can communicate the bare minimum that is needed. Correct? The bare minimum that is needed. Even the Sabbath commandment says don't work and all that. Now if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, if you grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist, I think you can all relate to this. We know more about all the things that we can't do on Sabbath than the things we do. Correct? Yes. If you, especially if you grew up in the 70s and so on. Oh, on Sabbath is the day where we can't watch TV, we can't play with these toys, we can't buy, we can't do all these things, and it's it's, It gives a negative picture to this day. Now, the parents are doing this in good motive, I understand. But this is how we see the law, a set of do's and don'ts. And the don'ts are more than the do's. And so you have these debates that ensue where people sit down and discuss, what can we do on Sabbath? What is a legal, lawful thing to do on Sabbath? And so on and so forth. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is not like that. It is not like that. It is righteousness. It is where God opens before you the horizon. It doesn't restrict you. He gives you his will. He gives you his heart, his desires, and his intentions. The Sabbath does not become a burden that we smile during, but in our hearts we feel, when is it going to be over? This was my experience growing up many times. I'm like, man, when is sunset going to happen? Because then we can have some fun. Today is the non-fun day. So uh, this is now my job as a parent with my child. I need to make sure she doesn't see the Sabbath as an unfun day, okay? And it's a challenge. I'm, I'm not saying I have the answers, but we need to understand what God's intention is. So Christ is the fulfillment of the law. The law was a shadow to point to Christ. He is the substance. He is the reality. The shadow is not. To maintain the shadow when the substance is here is to diminish the reality that much. The more shadows we implement, the more we hide the reality. It just shows we don't really understand what the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is. Many people have very good motives in implementing shadows. A a very popular example today is feast keeping. Feast keeping is an implementation of shadows and types of the old covenant. It just tells me that there is something that is missed when it comes to Christ. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus far exceeds the law of types and shadows. I'll put it to you this way. A lot of people say, well, you know, during the feast times, you are blessed. I have news for you. The new covenant time, you are blessed all the time. Not for one week. Not for two weeks in the year. All the time you have Christ Jesus and you're blessed. Wow, that's good news. Welcome to the new covenant. It's not coming. It's here. Do we really realize and appreciate that? God does not want us to live, brothers and sisters, in a way where if we have the right formula, we will gain God's favor and God's blessing. This is how the old covenant was. If you obey, and if you do everything I say, the specifications, then I will bless you. God does not want us to live in the new covenant that way. God is saying, I have blessed you in Christ. If you have Christ, you have all the blessings. Sadly, many times today, the gospel that a lot of people believe is a gospel of formulas to obtain blessings. If you have the right formula and can calculate the right date, the feast is the example I'm using. There's many others. I'm not just speaking on that, but that's just illustrative because I know a lot of people, friends of mine who are into that. If you have the right formula and calculate the right date, then you will receive a blessing. If you don't, then too bad, brother. You will miss out on the blessing. Guess what? This is old covenantism. This is old. These are the terms of the Old Covenant. And it doesn't matter how nice or flower you might present this. At the core of it, this is what it comes down to when it comes to the question of the feasts. If you have the right date and you keep it, you're blessed. If you don't, you're not. This is what the Old Covenant was about. So this is my invitation to everyone who is listening here and listening elsewhere on the video. Welcome to the New Covenant. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to have the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You'll be blessed all the time. If you think a week is great, wait till you see if you're blessed all the time. It's much better. We can't add blessings, brothers and sisters, to what we have in Christ. There isn't, here is Christ, he fulfilled the law, it's good. But then there is this added blessing that if you do this thing and you do the other thing, you get more blessed. What are you going to top up on what God has given us to Christ? You know, Christ plus some, it means you don't realize what's in Christ. It's like the lost man in Sydney looking for the Sydney road sign, right? You don't really realize what you have. Christ is the fulfillment of that. This is the Old Covenant, priesthood and the Old Covenant sacrifices. I want to share this because it's something that I encounter a lot. A lot of people tell me, well, you know, why are you picking on the feasts? Feasts are harmless, Soon the people gather together, and there's nothing wrong with gathering together at any time, uh, the problem is when there's a theology behind it that specifies if you do this, then you will get this. But anyway, people say it's harmless, it's not a problem. It's not harmless to maintain a shadow when the light has come, that is not harmless. I wanna illustrate it by this, if I today dressed like this, as a priest, to come and preach before you today. And I dress like a priest. And in the break after the service, I have a lamb waiting outside, and I go sacrifice it. Would you think there is a problem? I hope you do. But if I was to tell you that I'm actually blessed in this experience, it draws me closer to God, and and, and I feel a blessing in it, would you still be concerned? Or would that render it harmless? You'd still be concerned. Why? Because it's been fulfilled. Because it's inferior. Because there is something greater and better that does not require me to go to all this trouble and to go to all this gory ritual. Correct? But I tell you, but brother, and sister, don't worry. I understand the gospel. I am in the New Covenant. I'm a New Covenant believer. I'm not doing these things as an Old Covenant believer. No, I'm doing these things Actually, by faith. Would that make it okay? But I'm doing them by faith. You see, brothers and sisters, this word is used, and and misused, and slapped on to sanctify and sanitize anything. I'm using this example to say, you wouldn't buy it, of course, but this is the same reasoning that is used, brothers and sisters, to convince people that it's okay to maintain other shadows and other types. Paul said it well, the law is not of faith. Remember that verse? Christ Jesus is the fulfillment. So this is one of the misrepresentations of Christianity as well. Maintaining the shadow when the fulfillment has come. Maintaining an unfulfilled law when the reality is here. Christ Jesus is that reality. Our last verse Hebrews 13 verses 20 and 21 Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you perfect in every good work to do his will working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen The blood of the everlasting covenant, is the life of the Son. The life of the Son of God. God wants that to be in you. That's what makes us perfect. To do His will and work in us the things that are well-pleasing in His sight. Where is that written down? It's not written down. The things that are well-pleasing in His sight. You don't go to a book or a set of instructions to find the things that are well-pleasing in His sight. You know why? Because there are so many things that happen in life, there are so many scenarios that cannot be preempted by a set of instructions. God will tell you in each circumstance, in each situation, the things that are well-pleasing in His sight, individually, personally, by His Spirit within you. And these things will far exceed, you will not just not kill, They will far exceed the bare minimum requirements of the law that says don't, don't, don't. God can now tell you do this and do that and do the other thing. This is Paul's prayer at the end of the book that was written to teach the Hebrews about the new covenant that is better than the old covenant. And so indeed, that's my prayer for all of us today, that we will have that and that Christ may have that glory forever and ever. Amen. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.